There's a very popular idea, and I think most people believe this without thinking about it, that any technology is neutral. It's all about the way you use it. You can use it for good things or you can use it for bad things. And I fundamentally disagree with that. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Twelve years is like a lifetime in the world of technology. Back in 2010, the general sentiment about the internet was that it was going to leave us more empowered, more connected, and better informed. That the capabilities enabled by technology were fundamentally aligned with democratic interests. The Arab Spring was showing us how social media could enable collective action, and an explosion of blogs and Twitter accounts meant that the old gatekeepers were ceding space to those once left out of our public sphere, which was all pretty exciting. But Nicholas Carr was seeing something else entirely. Nick started blogging about the internet in 2005, expressing concern about everything from MySpace to e-readers to 99-cent singles on iTunes. And in 2010, he published a book called The Shallows, which would become a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In The Shallows, Nick argued that the internet wasn't just changing our economy, our politics, and our society, but also our brains. It was changing the way we think. It was changing how we communicated and interacted with one another. In short, it was changing who we were as a species. At the time, many, and I include myself here, thought Nick was being a little too pessimistic. But of course, it turned out that he was mostly right. So I wanted to sit down with him and ask how he saw everything so clearly, so early, and where he thinks we're going now. Because even though we now have a much deeper understanding of the social web, we found ourselves in another moment of techno-optimism, around cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and the metaverse. And this time, we'd probably all benefit from thinking a little more like Nicholas Carr. Here's our conversation. So I just want to start with some of your sort of earlier work, I guess, and where you were ahead of the curve, clearly, in pointing out some of the deficiencies of particularly the social web as it was emerging. And I I'm just curious broadly what it was like being so sort of against the current beliefs about these technologies at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of strange because I started a blog in 2005, which was right at the start of what was then called Web 2.0, the, the social web. And I guess I had... I'd gone from being a, a a lover of personal computers and the internet and the technology to being more and more skeptical, particularly coming out of the big dot-com crash, where all the all those dreams seemed to fall apart and the people who suffered more were <laughs> small individual investors who, who bought into it. So I came at it from a, a kind of skeptical view. And there was a lot at the time, there was kind of an enormous utopian sense that this was going to, you know, overthrow all the old gatekeepers and the media structures that kept the public voice out of the established media. And beyond that, that it was going to create this kind of, almost a kind of world harmony sense that we'd all be talking to each other and everything was going to 
give us a new start, give humanity a new start. And there were some articles in Wired magazine that kind of said we'd be like angels now <laughs> all floating around. So as someone who had studied media, the history of media and so forth, I knew that when you get these kind of big systems, particularly big communication systems, the unexpected, unanticipated consequences are often bigger than what everybody thinks is going to happen. And, and they often run counter to that. So I felt kind of lonely at the time, but also it was <laughs> it was also sort of you got the the small thrill of being the contrarian in the room, I guess. What made you confident that you were really onto something there, that your your critiques of this broader system as it emerged as Web 2.0 was right? Well, I think what I had what I had come to realize is that the leaders in the technology world, they actually took a very narrow view of digital technology, very much focused on the technology itself and the economics. And what was completely missing, I think, from, from their view was any sense of culture, any sense of human nature, psychology, philosophy. And so when I, when I looked at it from those perspectives, it kind of became clear to me that First of all, that the, this sense that we were going to democratize media came up against this fact that we were actually creating these huge centralized information clearinghouses in private hands, Google, Facebook, and so forth. Um, and then second, it seemed quite clear that when you open up democratized communication, you'll get a lot of good communication, but you're going to get a lot of bad communication as well. And you're going to you're going to amplify the bad parts of human nature as much as the good parts. And so it was kind of that sense that we were opening a Pandora's box and that the people who <laughs> were in charge of the Pandora's box had no idea what was going to come out of there. Yeah, and it feels to me there's two things that were in tension there. I mean, there was certainly a new form of collective action that was being enabled through these technologies, and we we saw examples of that. Um, but we were also, as you say, centralizing control and the filter point in a new set of powerful centralized institutions. So we we kind of were doing both these things at the same time, and those weren't compatible ultimately. That's right. Um, and I think that tension is is one of the reasons we're we're struggling with all sorts of problems today because we invested control in companies that were fundamentally utopian, at least Google and stuff. I, I don't, I'm not sure about Facebook and stuff. I, uh, I don't think that would be the right word. But, you know, and these companies just trusted the technology would take care of all the problems. And, and, you know, what they completely dismissed was that the much-hated gatekeepers that they kept talking about, people like editors, fact-checkers, uh, these people actually played an important role um, that was going to be thrown aside. And, and we'd have these companies whose editorial function was going to be completely determined by their economic self-interest, which was all about keeping people glued to screens and giving them little bits of content that had strong emotional, that set off strong emotional responses in them. And that's kind of what's happened. So one of the things you, you used as an example at the time, I think, was um, a kind of almost a fetishizing of the amateur that existed in a lot of this period. And you use Wikipedia as an example at the time. And I, I wonder how you think about amateurs now. In fact, Wikimedia almost seems like old media in the digital, like it does have lots more structure than 
Facebook does or TikTok <laughs> or like we're in a totally different place of amateurs now. And I'm, I'm wondering how you view that distinction. Yeah. So this was at the time when, when everybody focused on social media or promoting social media was talking about getting rid of uh, established media as the power centers and the gatekeepers. And so my problem, it wasn't it wasn't because I was opposed to amateurs you know, having a voice and, and having access to these tools and to the broadcasting technology. It was it was more the idea that amateurs could take over all of this and we wouldn't lose anything. In fact, we'd only gain stuff. And so and so it was really kind of an argument that if we think that by throwing out all the professionals and making it impossible for really talented professionals to make a living, you know, making music or writing words and publishing words, then we were going to be very, very disappointed because there's a lot of things that amateurs simply can't do. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. I, I mean, now, I mean, the line between professional amateur is almost com completely yeah, gone away now. I don't even it, how we think about that now. Frankly. Right. I mean, you look at the debate about COVID and anti-vax content and like, we can't even agree that medical professionals are experts. It seems to me part of the problem now is that we've lost all signals of authority. I mean, we just have, we have no longer have a way as a consumer of information in these ecosystems to, to know immediately or quickly, or even with some work, who we can trust and who we can't. And it makes me believe that Wikipedia might have actually got some things right here. <laughs> like they, they built, they took the good things about amateurs, but they added kind of a layer of editorial constraint on them. And is that right, do you think? Yeah. Like, were they onto something that we should actually be trying to emulate now more? I, I think so. It does seem that th that that model, looking back on it was with some nostalgia now, <laughs> I can see that it, it was probably a better model. But a lot of people in the beginning, looked at Wikipedia as kind of a cultural manifestation of the open source software movement. And there was this sense in the beginning that, oh, this model can be applied all across culture. And what we found is really, there might, there, there seems to be something about software production and encyclopedia production, lots of little pieces that need to be joined together in some coherent way that doesn't seem we haven't seen that model spread. And I think it's it's because different forms of communication are not, are simply not amenable to that kind of structure. Yeah, I mean, it runs pretty fundamentally counter to the way information spreads through our social media ecosystem, for example, which depends on fluidity and virality and, no, and loss of friction. And right. The exact opposite of that kind of model of friction that Wikipedia seemed to impose. I've often... I've often thought it would be good if if there was kind of a tape delay on social media that so that nothing anybody posted would appear for like a half an hour. And I, and I think just putting in that friction and slowing things down could have a really With, good without effect. Without a doubt. If you, and I'm going to talk more about the policy side of this, but I think part of the real lever we could pull here is to actually create more friction um, and impose friction on this system. Yeah, and... And, and there have been some interesting proposals recently about coming in and actually making things harder, making it more difficult, making it slower, which goes absolutely against the original ideal deal of getting rid of the friction altogether. And so what we've learned is that friction is too much friction is bad, but some degree of friction is actually probably 
necessary. Absolutely. And I want to come back to that policy piece in a minute, but it feels like well, it's, it's clear that every time society's gone through one of these big transformations in how they communicate and learn about the world, they've always had trade-offs embedded with them. Like the, the printing press gave us tons of new information, um, but the written word changed how we interpreted the world, right? And and you've written a lot recently about how our our current that current moment we're in actually might be changing us kind of fundamentally. Can you talk a little bit about that trade-off we're facing now? Like, what do you think we're losing and what are we gaining in with this new system? Well, we've started to optimize the human brain for, for very fast-paced information processing, taking in signal very fast and sending out signal in response. So kind of a almost a machine type of, of mind. And I, th- I think what you get you know, with that is a lot of stimulation, <laughs> a lot of entertainment and, and engagement. And in many cases, you know, it's kind of this ongoing brainstorming session uh, that never ends. And as with any brainstorming session, you can get, you know, good ideas bubbling up out of this and, and people, you know, conversing in ways that will were difficult, if not impossible before, and you get a lot of good things when people converse. I think, you know, the loss, and this is something I've written about quite a bit, is everything that comes <laughs> when you're able to screen out distractions and interruptions and control your mind and, you know, attend to one thing in in some kind of quiet, focused way. And to me, and different people are going to, th- this comes down to what a person's philosophy of kind of what human beings and human intelligence is best suited for. But but to me, that that loss of kind of contemplation, introspection, also, it seems to me, points to a sort of loss of inner richness or something, this kind of sense of being part of part of a broad culture, but also someone who who has the ability to establish their own point of view and can take in new information and actually not just respond very, very quickly, but think about it and and uh, associate it, connect it with other things they know. It seems that like that is what is is being lost. Not entirely. There are always going to be people that can do that. But it's being lo- lost and also is being devalued. Because I think one thing we see over and over again with technology, particularly media or communications technology, is that society not only kind of is shaped by the technology, but their views on the mind are shaped by technology. So we say, oh, you know, things like contemplation and paying attention and being offline or whatever, that that doesn't matter much anymore. And it's also kind of makes makes people suspicious of you if you're you're not connected all the time and you can't be reached and you take you know three hours to respond to a text or something you know it's not only changes in the way we think and the way we perceive things but changes in the values we associate with different forms of thinking and perception i think we tend to think of these sorts of interferences from outside whether they be social media or notifications as a distraction, but it seems to me you're saying something deeper, which is it actually is changing how our consciousness functions and how we think and what we think. Um, it's not just stopping us from thinking, it's changing our thinking. And I, I recently interviewed one of the sort of 
initial scholars around neuroplasticity. And that's the argument that comes out of that world too, right? Which is these technologies aren't just interfering with our lives, they're changing our mind <laughs> in some fundamental ways. Right. You know, one one thing that the science of neuroplasticity, that the fact that the mind throughout our lives is, is malleable and adapts to circumstances, adapts to the environment, one thing it teaches us is that when you change the way information is presented to you and change the way you take in information and think about it, that's not that doesn't go away when you set your phone aside or, or turn off your computer or whatever. It kind of leads to deep ongoing changes, not necessarily permanent. If you change your habits because it's plastic, it will change. But but and this was really one of the spurs for a lot of my work is that I, I found it myself because I'd spent a lot of time online that I was really having trouble paying attention, kind of sitting down with a book and reading for hours on end, something I used to do quite naturally, um, suddenly was a struggle. And I, I really felt, man, I would like to go go over to, to the computer and check email or, or Google stuff. And so it was that kind of personal experience that something's going on here that that led me to, to try to associate this phenomenon with some of the deeper ways that the mind and the brain work. And one of the ways the mind does function is through a stream of consciousness thought process we go through, which is a very internal, private thing, an individualized thing. But in many ways, we're now doing that publicly. Is that some, a fundamental change there too? Yeah. In, in fact, and this is something I've been, I've been trying to get my head around recently, and I'm not sure I've totally done it, but the way I think of it is that, that social media has sort of turned us inside out that that stream of consciousness that used to go on inside of us you know emotions that we felt and then had to process and stuff and opinions suddenly it's all out there it's it gets broadcast almost immediately which changes our relationship to our emotions and our passing thoughts and our experiences uh rather than somehow <laughs> processing them within us we process them socially now and at the same time, and I think this has been exaggerated by the pandemic, the kind of traditional outward self that you'd present kind of in your presence, your physical presence, is sort of turning into the interior self because we, you see people retreating. And I think this was happening before the pandemic, but even more so now, kind of becoming less comfortable with physical presence um, in retreating from that and feeling more and more comfortable with this, with what used to go on inside us now going on as sort of an ongoing media production. So, so there's something very interesting, I think, going on and very, very deep in, in the way we construct ourself. Yeah. If you talk to people who study teenage use of social media, for example, They'll say that like visual projection of self is like the biggest change here is like that the constant projection of yourself out to the public and images of yourself is a fundamental change to how teenagers engaged with each other before and right. came to know themselves. Yeah, I've been over the last couple of years, I've been teaching a, an undergraduate seminar on social media, and that certainly comes through there that, you know, you're you're constantly receiving signals back about how you portray yourself. And it, it, it's not like people di have never been self-conscious before and <laughs> concerned about their appearance and stuff, but we've never 
been so intensely, you know, overwhelmed with, with this sense that I am this image that I'm constantly projecting and constantly getting feedback about. So I mean, there's, there's clearly trade-offs in the emergence of each of these new technology infrastructures. Um, and I think we'd say in retrospect that the trade-offs around the printing press were probably worth it. Do you think we might look back at this moment if we figure out some of these sort of more harmful attributes and say, look, like this access to constant streams of information and more knowledge than we could ever possibly consume, like that these things might ultimately be worth the trade-offs, even if they are changing how we think, changing ourselves in some meaningful ways. I mean, it seems to me that there's two possibilities here. In the future, we may look back and say, oh, thank goodness that happened. And we may be totally wrong because we've we've so adapted to the to it that we we see anything before as being kind of weird and how could people live like that? Um, people are very adaptable. And I often, you know, when I criticize technology and its effects on us, people often try to counter my argument by saying, well, we'll adapt. And I said, no, that's the problem. We'll adapt. We have adapted. So so we might adapt so fully that we, even though we may have lost more than we've gained, we're not able to see it. And we assume it's all gain. So that's one possibility. Um, do, I mean, right now, do I see that in the end we'll be better off because of the current technology? I, I guess, I guess n no, I don't think so. You know, there's still a possibility that some big changes happen, and they could be changes at a kind of personal level where people just say, why Why am I doing this all the time? And they change. And that's still within the realm of possibility. You see it. You kind of see signs of it with social media. I, I get a, a certain sense. I may be totally wrong about this, but there, there's kind of a sense of growing exhaustion with, you know, people who used to, I see on Instagram all the time are doing it less and less often. And so so things may change. The government may get more involved regulation. But if we continue down the path that we're on, you know, even more information at a faster pace and fragmented, which seems to lead to, to a kind of tribalism, factionalism, I, I just don't see it ending well. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm broadly with you. I mean, I, the question I get more often than anything else and that I dislike almost the most is whether these technologies do more harm than good, as if it's some like 51% binary <laughs> that if like, like we don't do that in any other sector of our society, yeah. right? That if you're 51% good, then yeah. no, all, no problems, right? Let me, <laughs> my, let me pull out my cultural spreadsheet and do a quick calculation. I'll let you know. Exactly. Um, and, and like, I want to talk to you where these technologies are going and where these companies are, are say they're going. Um, but it, it seems to me that first, even if some of the things they say they're building end up being built, and I, I do want to talk about those, for the vast majority of the world, the social web, web 2.0, will be the internet for a while. <laughs> Everybody's not going to end up in the metaverse in most of the world. So how much responsibility do we have to not just move on to the next thing, but to actually fix the thing we use and that most people will be using for the foreseeable future? I I mean, I certainly think we have a responsibility and a pressing need to 
to rethink the way social media operates and the way it's organized. You know, there's a technology historian and theorist um, named Thomas Hughes, who who died several years ago, but he he came up with this I, concept of technological momentum that basically said, you know, in when you're talking about big systems, electricity and whatever, you know, there's a time when society can alter the way they work early on before they're well established, but then they get so deeply embedded in social processes, social norms, the way everything works that it becomes really, really hard to change them. And so my fear is that that even though we can now more clearly see a lot of the problems that have emerged from social media and, and other forms of digital media, it seems like there's this kind of paralysis when it comes to actually doing anything, anything really big enough to change the way these things operate. So in answer to your question, I, I think we do or at least should feel that, hey, we need to rethink a lot of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to throw it out, obviously, but and there are a lot of good ideas out there that we could, if society was able anymore, and I don't know if this is possible, to make a kind of concerted effort to change something as big as a, as a large-scale communication system, then I think that would be a good thing. I spent a lot of time in those policy debates with governments and the public and thinking about how you might, all the different things you could do to change the operation of these companies or minimize these harms. And one of the core narratives in that debate is that it's just about the business model, right? That you you change the underlying incentives of the surveillance capitalist economy or the data economy and you'll change the outcomes. But it strikes me reading your work that you're actually saying that the the medium here the actual technology may itself be also causing harm and and i i wonder if you think that actually the business yeah sure it'd be great it might help a bit to solve the business model problem or the data collection problem but it's not solving all these problems and particularly not some of the ones you're talking about some of these ones about the mind and the self and the... that that's exactly what i think i i mean i i think there are important things particularly when we look at the way bad information gets promoted and, and spread, I think there are ways to deal with that. And, and a lot of them have to do with the business model. But I do think, you know, I, I guess I reject, there's a very popular idea, and I think most people believe this without thinking about it, that any technology is neutral. It's all about the way you use it. You can use it for good things or you can use it for bad things. And like some other <laughs> media writers, I I fundamentally disagree with that. You know, I'm not saying there are good and bad uses of tools, but but I believe that technologies have biases in them, in the way they fundamentally operate, that you can't really change. I, I mean, when you adopt them, you're buying in into that bias. And so computers and computer networks, you know, as a technology, they want to dispense as much information as quickly as possible. I mean, that's why we have computers. I, you know, it, it's not to slow things down. It, and so I, I do think that as a communications medium, you know, a computer, a computer network is fundamentally different from a, you know, traditional telephone network or the post office. Um, and, and you can't just say, oh, you know, we'll just figure out the best way to use it and all these problems will go away. I, I think the deep changes they introduce into 
the way we think, the way we perceive the world, the way we perceive one another. I'm not sure that those, you know, are amenable to kind of regulatory solutions. So how does that change the policy conversation then? I, I don't think it makes the policy conversation less important, but I, but I think it it says that, look, there are some things that we may be able to address through policy um, and law, and but there are there are other things that are just probably going to be a long term consequence. You know, when we a hundred years ago, when society went through the process of electrification, a lot of things changed, and you know, fiddling with the currencies and the voltages and or the business model would not really have changed anything about that. So it does feel in some meaningful ways that some of these companies we've been talking about are shifting to new ideas and new conception, new new technologies themselves. And I, I have an eight-year-old and he, he, he thinks of media as Roblox and Minecraft and places in which he socializes in a digital space, which feels to me is fundamentally different than previous versions of the internet. I mean, he sees these as places he participates and socializes, not things he goes to or information he consumes. And, and I really get the sense we're normalizing this idea of a metaverse or virtual spaces into a new generation. Do you see that as a totally different medium? Or is this an evolution of that what we've been talking about? Um. I think it's an evolution, but I think it if it pans out, I think its its consequences won't be exactly the same. I, I think there'll be some similarities. Um, but I think what you're describing is absolutely right. And what the intellectual class that's so busy on <laughs> media and discussing media and discussing social media has a complete blind spot for for gaming in all its various permutations. And so, you know, the the chattering class is is really interested in social media and Twitter because they're constantly on Twitter and they're, you know, that's their world. Whereas they're not on Roblox. And, but there is, it seems to me, a generation that has spent lots and lots of time in these virtual worlds of games of all, all sorts. And it's very much a part of their life. I, I mean, so I think, I think there are some, still some basic questions about, you know, is this, is this really going to become the a kind of dominant interface for computing or is it going to continue to exist in the entertainment sphere and and I don't think we know that you know even if an 8-year-old is spending huge amounts of time in Roblox or it doesn't necessarily mean that when that person is 28 or something they're not you know we do a lot of stuff when we're kids that don't necessarily carry through to adulthood so so I don't it's very, very hard to predict exactly how this is going to play out. But I do think that we're seeing signs that that young people in particular are in a way becoming more comfortable in the virtual sphere than in the physical sphere. There was this recent survey a few years ago by Pew that asked teenagers, you know, how do you, how do you like to socialize with your friends? And they've been asking this for a long time. And you see this dramatic shift away from in-person to various ways of socializing online. 
whether it's, you know, through texting or gaming or, or social media or, or whatever. And now it's like 66% of American seniors say, I'd prefer to socialize online. That's, that's a radical change to me. I can't, I find it almost hard to imagine, but it shows that something probably pretty big is going on. Yeah. And look, we've only hastened it through the pandemic when we've also Absolutely. put them in school online as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just their free time, it's their time that is online now in every meaningful way. And, and I, Have you given any thought to how this new change might be changing how we think and how we interact with each other in the same way the social web did? I, I've been starting to try to think about it. Um, <laughs> because one thing, I mean, I mean, one thing I think that's important for for society as a whole is hopefully we've learned the lesson from social media that you know back when MySpace started and Facebook and Twitter they were seen as jokes by a lot of people that oh there's here's this silly thing that you know kids and college students fiddle around with and get dates or you know Twitter was seen as a place where people you know describe what they had for breakfast and society didn't get involved in thinking about you know what are the long term <laughs> consequences here and how is this going to play out so I think if we take a lesson from that. Even if you're skeptical about virtual reality and augmented reality, now is the time that society has to engage with these visions of the future while, you know, big power centers are organizing themselves um, because, it, you know, it goes beyond social media to, you know, how money <laughs> operates and how property operates and how politics operates. So we should be concerned. I, I How is it going to affect us in, in terms of, perception and, and thinking. Well, certainly if you're, you know, if you end up spending most of your time as some kind of avatar, it does seem to me that that's a, a radically different way to live. Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's going to have... That's an understatement. Yeah, yeah it's going to have <laughs> big effects on how we perceive things. Mm. And And the scary part is that it it raises the possibility for, you know, a brave new world type of situation where people are so infatuated with the pleasures of a creation that's pure media that they lose interest in, you know, <laughs> what's going on outside of that. And, and simply, you know, if, if, if Mark Zuckerberg can, you know, give me the, the, the hardware and the software and the, the very entertaining uh, experiences, then he can go off and do whatever he wants. Right. And that seems to be one of the main differences between now and and the emergence of the social web is that the companies building Twitter and Facebook were small startups. <laughs> so it was, it was, I mean, not unreasonable to dismiss them as fundamentally changing the world. But now the people building the metaverse are the biggest companies in human history. So right. if they say they're building this thing, I mean, damn right, we should pay attention to some degree, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, these these things, particularly if you start connecting them all up and stuff, they're so compute intensive, so mm. so capital intensive that it's kind of hard. You can have, you know, smaller companies playing around in in this area but it does seem to me that it's it's there's there's a big big advantage to bigness here and having yeah. the kind of incredible computing infrastructure that allows you to 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 put together these virtual worlds particularly if if we're talking about you know if we're talking about what 
Mark Zuckerberg and others have expressed is this kind of persistent virtual space that mm. uh, on the one hand totally replicates the real world, but then has all sorts of fantasy worlds too. That's, right. th- that's a big job. Yeah. So the, the last thing I just want to touch on here is there, there is a sort of s- slightly different narrative emerging about the future of these technologies as well, which you know, in some ways pushes back against the centralization and says that we are going to be um, decentralizing both decision-making and money and, as you say, property and all sort of under the banner of this Web3 concept. And I, I know you've been thinking a bit about that, but how, how do you grapple with that the, that that tension there between uh, the centralization with clearly, I mean, the, the metaverse will be centralized. I mean, it will be run yeah. by big companies. Um, but the idea of Web3 might, in theory, give agency and currency and ownership to participants within it. Right. And I have to admit, you know, I'm still struggling to <laughs> figure out Web3. And I mean, I mean, my my sense coming in is that if you look at what a lot of these companies and in, in, in venture capitalists are doing, it looks very much like a next wave of centralization. And so, yeah, I, I mean, you can see at a, at a kind of theoretical, technical level that you're going to you're going to give everybody a share in it and stuff. But I guess I, I, I guess at this point without being fully, I think, fully educated on all the ins and outs technologically, I'm more with the skeptics who say, whoa, you got to <laughs> run away because this is this is going to be really bad. And, and I do think, you know, if you look at the money going into this, you know, Meta putting in 10 billion a year, you know, venture capitalists, you know, they're not doing this out of philanthropic... <laughs> Uh, philanthropic motives. And so, yeah, it seems to me that it's kind of uh, the whole decentralization and everybody will get a piece of it strikes me as a, a Trojan horse here. Yeah, yeah I, I'm also trying to get my head around it. And I, I think that's partly because it isn't a thing yet. It's sort of, a, it's a, it's an imagination of certain people and certain people with lots of money, certainly, but. Yeah. You know. And if you look at, you know, if you look at NFTs and stuff, it, it seems like uh, the next progression of kind of consumerism to sort of purely symbolic and there's purely symbolic purchases that I I don't know. It's it's I, I don't see it as the kind of saving grace of, of the Internet, I guess. Just to, to close here, I mean, I I often get accused of being far too negative on these technologies. And a Facebook official once recently said that I hate the internet and went around sort of publicly saying I hate the internet, which is could actually couldn't be further from the truth. I think sometimes pointing out the downsides of these technologies is is an effort to preserve the good things about them. And and I'm wondering how you see that balance now. Like what do what do you think is really worth preserving and fighting for? in the technologies we currently use? And what, do you, what are you sort of hopeful for there? You know, I, I come to this as a person who, you know, when personal computers arrived, was really excited about them, couldn't wait to get one, stayed up all night with my first, you know, for many nights on, on end, you know, really having fun and, and kind of exploring it. And, and the same with the internet when it came along, the web. So my feeling is when the technology turned from this set of tools represented by all the applications in in your PC or your 
whatever, to a media system, that's when I started to have big problems with it. Um, to me, the best kind of tools are the ones that give individuals or groups of people more agency, allow them to pursue their personal curiosity and explore and, and do these things that I think are fundamentally good for us, but also require you to, you know, require that space for individuals to make decisions about what's important to them, what they're going to look at, what they're going to pay attention to. And it seems to me that, you know, the one of the big problems with digital media in general is that more and more it's whatever's on your screen determines what you're paying attention to. So it's kind of, it, it, and I think the big social media companies, I don't necessarily think they did this for evil purposes, though some of them may have, but they're basically in the business of controlling your mind, determining what you're going to pay attention to. And they're very good at it. And they got the data that gives them the ability. So to me, I, I, I mean, I would like to go back, back somehow toward more of a view of computers and digital technology in general as a set of tools that people can make choices about in that, in that you know, open people's horizons Whereas I think what's what's happened in the, over the last 10, 20 years is exactly the opposite, that that even though we feel like this whole new world has been open for us of unlimited information and stimulus and entertainment, actually, we're losing kind of agency and we're losing personal control of our, of our minds and what we pay attention to. Um, and our horizons, I think, in, in a way are, are shrinking. So I do think there's this fundamental tension between what I think of as good technology and what I think of as bad technology. And unfortunately, I think the bad technology recently has, has had the advantage. That was my conversation with Nicholas Carr. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.